Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome. I am your host Tia Hama and today we are going to be discussing workplace productivity and rejecting the traditional 9 to 5 p.m. I'm here with Donna McGeorge. Hi Donna, how are you? Good, thanks Tia. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Uh, For those who don't know you, do you mind explaining a bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. Uh, So essentially I'm a productivity author and expert Uh, What I'm passionate about, though, is helping people manage their capacity so that they have the right amount of um, thinking, breathing, living and working space to be able to show up as their best selves in whatever context they need to. So as I already mentioned today, uh, we are discussing workplace productivity. Uh, So for our listeners, Donna, how would you define workplace productivity? So, of course, it's going to be uh, different and unique for everyone. But I think if I was to give her an overarching description, I'd probably say the things that you value and or the things that create impact. And so when we work in an organisation, we're hired for our genius or our smarts. And so anytime we're doing the things that are directly related to those things that that are impactful, that we value, that the organisation values. Because you all know you've had those kind of days where you've been flat out all day doing nothing of value when you're exhausted versus the days where you felt like you were in flow. And those flow days were probably the days you were highly productive doing the very things that uh, your genius uh, loves to do. Yep, exactly. So before we get into all of that, we're going to do some rapid fire kind of icebreaker questions uh, so that Mm -hmm. our listeners can get to know you a little bit more. Okay, Okay, so I'm going to just ask you some questions and just, you know, give me answers for whatever comes to mind. Uh, So I guess my first question would be, what is your favorite book at the moment? Um... Probably the book that I wish that I'd written, which is um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. I have heard about that. How is it? It's such a good book. And, you know, you know, New York Times bestseller, you can't kind of go on any social media platform with someone not raving about, hey, I've just read this book and it's amazing. So, yeah, yeah and it's, it's good. It's really good. That's great. I'll have to give it a read. Uh, so what is your favourite movie? Um, gosh, probably the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, that's yeah. a good choice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely legendary. Everybody has to see that, I think. Yes, okay. indeed. And obviously we're a little biased, but what's your favourite podcast? Oh, of course it's yours, Tia. This is my favourite, favourite podcast. Wouldn't miss an episode. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. <laughs> that's very good. 
Very nice answer. Wonderful. Um, and do you have a favorite documentary? I always like the answers to this question because I love documentaries. Well, I'm not sure whether this counts as a documentary or not, but I always loved the Walking with Dinosaurs um, series where they kind of had animated dinosaurs and they were showing your life back in the old days. I think it was so narrated cool. by someone fabulous. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, I can't think of his name right now. They're very famous. Like David Attenborough. Guy. That's of. the one, yeah, David Attenborough. That's him, David Attenborough. What a legend. <laughs> okay. Do you have an app that you would recommend? My favourite app is WhatsApp um, and that's because I can, uh, mostly because it's I stay in touch with my family. We've got a really good group family one on there and it's very active. Um, I, just, I just love it. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> okay. Um, do you have a favourite artist? Look, this is going to sound a bit cheesy, but actually it's my mum. She oh. is a watercolour painter and has been for a lot of years. Um, and so I just love her work. So she, it'd have to be my mum, I'm afraid. That's such a beautiful answer. I love that. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is a recent course you have completed? Uh, so I studied neurolinguistic programming. So I would say, I, and I went all the way. So the most recent one was I'm a teacher and trainer of NLP. Um, but of course, you start you start as being a practitioner, then a master practitioner, and then you become a teacher. Uh, so yeah, all the way uh, with all of that. That's so exciting! If you didn't grasp from my eye enlargement, what, what exactly is is that? Because I was like, that's a that sounds very complicated and interesting. So do you mind it, just look, explaining not, what that is? It has the worst name. In fact, the originators of it. Um, have later been interviewed and said they wish they'd called it something else because it really makes it sound way worse than it is. And the fact that you said your eyes enlarged is quite interesting because one of the aspects of NLP is observing people's physiological changes and looking for patterns in that. And so when you say your eyes enlarged, I actually couldn't see that, um, but that's okay. So really I would say it's communication on steroids. Um, and one of the originators says that to, to really just describe it, it's you know, how does it work? It's basically you just watch and listen because uh, people tell you everything that, that you need to know if you if you pay close attention and you listen um, and then you can use that to communicate more effectively. 100%. I completely agree. Okay. And our last question, uh, what is an event that you have recently attended? This can be in person or online considering the well, circumstances. Actually, it was online and it was my cousin's wedding. Um, oh. And it was the first time I did a wedding virtually um, wow. and it was so lovely because there was a whole bunch of us that were also online and we'd all created little grazing platters and had our champagne ready to go and we watched the ceremony and someone was walking around so that we could kind of mingle as well. It was really well done and it was a lovely ceremony. That's so nice. Yes, people have definitely come up with incredible ways on how to keep people connected during this interesting time. Um, yes. So, yeah, that's beautiful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for answering those questions. So now we're going to get into what I would describe as sort of a quick breakdown of your personal habits when it comes to workplace productivity because I know I'm interested and I'm sure the listeners are interested too um, as to what practices the experts actually use when it comes to productivity. <laughs> um, so my first question would be, what is the practice that you do to improve your productivity? 
There's so many, but I'll start with the one that I think has the greatest impact uh, for me, which is something called wiping the mind. Um, and it's every morning, it's, it's almost like a meditation, but every morning I write down everything that is on my mind. I empty out my head of everything it's thinking about. And it's not just tasks. It's not doing a to-do list. It's, it's literally, um, so for example, right now, my mother has been a bit unwell and she's fine. Everything's fine. But what's on my mind is I hope my mum's okay and I need to give my dad a call and I've got to ring my sister. So there's a few things that are on my mind around that. And so I would just write it all down. It's like a stream of consciousness. Just write down everything that's in your head. Now, out of that, there will be some tasks to do out of that. It'll fall out of that. But for the most part, the, the, the reason I do it is because the human mind is for having ideas, not storing them. And so the more I can get out of my head, out, out, out of the head, down through the arm, out through the pen and onto the paper, it clears up capacity in my brain to be able to think, um, solve problems uh, and, and, you know, just be my best self. Great. Thank you. So are there any challenges that you face when you do this practice? Look, it really just is about the discipline of it. So sometimes um, I, I sit to write down, and I mean, first of all, I've got to do it every day and I do. It's a daily practice that I do every day. Um, and I, I know I get busy sometimes and I think, oh, well, I do it today. And I know the days that I haven't are the days that I don't have as good a day. So I know it's really good for me. But probably the thing that happens sometimes, and this when you do this a lot, when you do clear out the stuff that's in your head, I do sometimes sit down and I write down three things and go, is there, is there anything else in there? And it's like silence screeching yep. me. So there's clearly not a lot in my head some morning. <laughs> no, completely understandable. So I guess um, I'm curious to know, a lot of people struggle to kind of make time to sit down and actually sort of jot things down and I guess sort of journal. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you find time to do this? Well, first of all, I pay attention to the clock in my body, not the clock on the wall. Yeah. So I know based on my rhythms and, and, and my body clock that I'm a morning person. Uh, so I'm, I'm typically up early and I'm at my best self, you know, in terms of my mental alertness in the morning. So I protect that time like it's really valuable real estate. Um, and I don't give it away. I don't share it with others. I'm very reluctant to take too many meetings or engagements before, say, nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. I do protect that morning time. And so that, mm -hmm. and that's when I do my morning rituals. And it's everything from, from going for a walk with my dog, uh, doing my wipe the mind, um, looking at my day and, and planning ahead, thinking about what preparation I might need to do for, for a podcast like this. What do I need to think about and prepare for? Um, and, and that has become such a habit of having that time protected. It's a bit like it's a bit like if I don't do it, it's like missing breakfast. The day is just not a good yeah. one if I don't have that time protected. That's wonderful. I think that's such an important point that we can all take away is just making sure that you allocate that time to yourself, um, whether it's in the morning or in the evening, just making sure that you have that time to sort of sit down with yourself and just decompress. You know, I try to find time in the evening, especially around dinner time where I don't look at any screens and I just sit down with like my diary or my journal and just sort of 
jot out things that I'm thinking about and things that I have to do. Um, and that's really important, whoever you are, if you have kids trying to find that time for yourself or if you, uh, you know, work an intense nine to five job, just making sure that you yeah, find that time. So would you recommend this practice to everyone? Yes, and, and you just raised an interesting point. So because I am a morning person and I like to wipe my mind before the beginning of the day, you just described maybe journaling and capturing your thoughts more at the end of the day. And and I would recommend either. So there's benefits. So the benefits of doing it in the morning means that my head's clear and I'm and I'm good to go. The benefits of doing it in the evening means you're emptying out your head in the evening, which means you're more likely to get a better night's sleep because you won't wake up at two at the, in the morning with mm. that, oh, that thing that Very I'm important. thinking about, right? <laughs> so absolutely, I'd recommend either strategy. Wonderful. So based on your experience, uh, do you have any other recommendations um, to combine with this practice or to improve this particular practice? Sure. Look, the, the, obviously, once you've emptied stuff out of your head and you've written what's on your mind down, the natural next thing is to do some version of a to-do list. And uh, so for me, again, because I work with the clock in my body, not the one on the wall, I, I assign my tasks according to certain times of day. So when I, after I've wiped my mind, I look at the list and go, right, here are some things that require high levels of intensity. So my brain needs to be switched on. So I'll do that first thing in the morning and schedule that. And it can be over the next few days. It doesn't have to be everything done that morning. So over the next few days, mm. these are the things I want to do in the morning. And then I'll have things that I do after lunch. They're very routine because my energy levels are a bit lower. My mental alertness isn't as high. So I've got a whole bunch of routine tasks, which are usually things like, you know, follow up on this, call someone about this, book something here that I don't need much brain power for. Um, and then, of course, in the, the very last part of the day, I'll do the, the things that are going to make the next morning better. So anything that my future self will thank me for. So I'll plan ahead. I'll do I sometimes do meal planning. I always plan my wardrobe. Um, <laughs> so so there's ways in which we structure our day so that we, um, you know, get the best, best return on our energetic input um, yeah, based on our body clock. You've brought up a really interesting point there in terms of you said um, going with the clock in your body, not the clock on the wall. Is that something that you've sort of always innately done or is that something that you've like had to actively bring into your life? Well, I've, I've, always, been, I've always known I've been a morning person. I, I get up early and I go to bed early, so I am a morning person. It started to come about when I started to research things like um, neuroscience and 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 things like your your, chrono, your, your chronotype and and what what it meant for different things. And then I read a really interesting book that started to talk about um, when that when was more important. So what so what's important, but when it was more important. And there were certain times mm -hmm. for certain things. So, for example, um, with exercise. Um, it's generally recommended the best time of day for exercise is at the end of the day or, or late afternoon, early evening. If you want to lose weight, though, the best time to do it is in the morning. And then certain foods are better to be eaten at certain times of day. And that got me very interested in, I wonder if there's certain tasks then, how does the brain work around that? And, of course, it's, 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 it's a line that mostly from, from about, I don't know, from waking to about midday, we've got high levels of mental alertness. 
from about midday to about three o'clock, we've got good physical dexterity. Um, and then from towards the evening is when our cardiovascular is in its best shape, which is why exercise is a good time to do that. And so when I started to think about that and work, I thought, ah, why would we be doing email first thing in the morning when that's really a routine task that we could do in the afternoon when we could use the morning for our more important and impactful higher priority kind of work. Mm. So that's it's kind of work. I mean, of course, I've been practicing it myself now for about five years um, and, and I love it. Love it. That's wonderful. Yeah. I think that'll definitely be something that I'll keep in mind in the future. Yeah. Working on my own clock and not the clock on the wall. That's great. Thank mm. you for that. Uh, so now we're going to get a little deeper into sort of the nitty gritty of workplace productivity and what that means and how to be your most productive self at work. And so just for our listeners, productivity can be seen as a mental attitude um, where a person aims to improve their life in an efficient but loving way. And so I'm going to assume, Donna, that there is a difference between workplace productivity and personal productivity. Um, But how would you define productivity both within and outside the scope of the workplace? I don't know that I'd separate them at a high level terribly much because it's still about the things that are more valuable to you. So maybe in personal life, I would say what what constitutes productivity is getting done the things that you need to get done. So we all have personal admin we have to do and making sure we're doing all the right things. But I'd also say what are the things that bring you joy and fill you with energy? And so I'd be prioritising those kind of things and saying that if I'm doing those kinds of things, that's helping me be productive, it's helping me have the right mindset and the chances are I'm going to have a very fulfilled and and enjoyable time of things. Um, At work, it's where... We're engaged, we're hired for, for specific things. We have uh, key tasks. That's what, what our job is. And so um, I would say you're being productive if you are delivering on the promise that you made when you took the job and that the organisation is getting the leverage of your genius or your smarts, the, the very thing that they hired you for. So in both cases, it's around doing the things you need to do, the most important things. Um, but I'm also going to layer on there this idea of, the things that add value and the things that are impactful in either context. Great. So there was a study conducted um, by Cornell University and University of California, uh, and they found that the main issue with task management wasn't prioritization, but the required effort to actually conduct the task efficiently. So When it comes to productivity within the context of task management, uh, what advice do you have for individuals are willing to take on uh, more complicated or hefty tasks um, and what should be the starting point? So I sometimes think the size of a task is is what we make happen in our head. So, And we quite literally, we imagine a task and we imagine Mm -hmm. it huge in our head. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I'm a believer that momentum trumps motivation. And so when we've got a really big task, sometimes we're waiting to feel motivated to get into it or something like that. I'm going to say, no, don't ever wait for motivation because it may never come, particularly if you've got it coded as something very big. So I'm going to always say there's always just a starting point and it'll be something super small. And because momentum trumps motivation, typically when we make that first, you know, we break it down into its smallest possible chunks 
and then we just start with one. And typically what happens is we think, I'll just do this bit. And that's when motivation starts to kick in. Now I'll do the next bit. Oh, now I may as well do the next bit. Oh, and before you know it, you've achieved a whole pile of stuff. Mm. Um, So I'm a big fan of chunking things down into the smallest possible form. And in terms of getting it, like if it's a big task that's going to take several months, I always ask myself, what do I need to get done in the next two weeks? And yep. and I and I think about the aspects of the work that have to be done just over the next two weeks. And then I'm at the next week now in the next two weeks. And it kind of then just creates this kind of flow on effect with that. Yeah, exactly. Smaller tasks. Yeah. So just mm. like making sure that you're staying present and thinking about what you can do for yourself sort of today to help yourself tomorrow. Um, and yeah, I think that's really helpful what you said in terms of breaking things down. I know when I face a hefty task, I think I'm only looking ahead in terms of how much work I have to get done and it can get a bit overwhelming and obviously Mm. you know the general person tends to freak out when they're given this big complicated task because you start to sort of um, you know doubt yourself and whether this is achievable so I think it's really important what you said in terms of breaking things down into smaller chunks um, and just, you know, ticking those things off and, you know, <laughs> feeling like you've achieved something, um, which is a great starting point. Um, <laughs> so according to Dr. David Cohen, to-do lists can tone down anxiety. Um, they provide structure and a plan to stick to and sort of act as proof of our achievements, like we just said. So do you think to-do lists are needed to be productive and do they have a lifespan? First of all, I love to-do lists. I, I'm a list person. I have lists all over the place. Yeah, same. Um, and I also like checklists, uh, I find. So they're quite a different thing. There's to-do lists and then there's checklists. So checklists are routine tasks, making sure I've ticked everything, you know, and they help me again if we think that the human mind is for um, having ideas, not storing them. Um, it helps me not have to remember things. And so for the same reason, I, I love to-do lists. Get everything out of your head. Get it written down. Get it get it documented somewhere is, is so much more important. Um, but in terms of lifespan, um, I would say um, I, I, don't think, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when they're not useful. So in terms of generally the lifespan of a to-do list, I think they're always useful. Mm. But what I pay attention to is what are the things that I didn't get done and how many times am I rolling them over to separate to, se- to for several days? And so I think there's a lifespan of a task, and the lifespan of a task shouldn't be more than three days. If you haven't done it in three days, you're never going to do it. It's just not going to happen. Or yeah. if you answer, if I say if you haven't done it in three days, you're never going to do it, and then you'll say something like, "But I have to do it." I'm like, "Then do it right now." Yeah. So you either do it right then, or you just delete it. So that's how that's how I think about it with my work. So I'm kind of curious, a lot of people have differing opinions on whether it's more helpful to write things down like manually with a pen on a piece of paper and have that to-do list there or whether to use a platform like an organization platform on your phone or on your computer. Which one are you sort of more partial to? I'm a, I'm a pen and paper kind of gal. Um, I've always loved, I mean, again, you and I are of a, a bit of a different generation, I think, so you may not remember um, file of faxes. Do you know what a file of fax is? I want to say, okay to say yes, no. as in like one of those diaries that have the diary little Diary systems, yeah, that they had yes. the ring and My mum had one of those. Yeah. 
<laughs> I've always had some kind of diary system. I always loved diary systems. I'm a bit of a stationary junkie. You know, one of my oh, things I that I do to calm myself if I'm ever stressed is go for a wander around office works. And so <laughs> I, I do have a system that I use and I designed it for myself for my own use. And it and in my to-do list is not a big, long list um, as some people might uh, expect. My to-do list is split over time. So uh, when I think that I have something to do, I have run it through a filter first of, is this going to require much intensity Mm. and how impactful is it? Um, And so, which is return on energetic investment. And so I then organize, I write it in my planner according to what time of day is the best time for me to do it. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think there is, like you sort of said, there is obviously those generational differences where people are going to prefer to write things down or, you know, going to type things on your laptop or your iPhone. I guess um, I love writing stuff with a pen. I feel very um, productive and like, you know, very organized (laughs) when I write things down in my diary. Um, But the only problem I tend to find with that is I'll be out somewhere, like I'll be on the train or I'll be, you know, running to a work event or something like that. And something will spark in my head, like, oh yeah, I need to do this. And at that moment, like, I just feel like I'm not the kind of person who could just sort of lean over and write something on a notepad. Like I just sort of type it into my phone as I'm running. um, Cause otherwise I will completely forget about that task. So I think as much as I love writing stuff down on paper, my phone and those like organization apps like I use Notion do you use Notion no I'm, I'm not familiar with it but I'm, I'm going to wildly agree with you right now because I don't carry my planner with me everywhere I go really um and so I just use the notes app on my phone if I'm out somewhere and I suddenly remember something I'll whack it in notes and then when I get home I'll transfer it if I need to but often my list, so I'll often get inspiration just like, you know, I'm out shopping or, or, or out wandering the streets and I'll suddenly think of things like, oh, my sister would love that for Christmas or her birthday. So I have lists set up in notes that if I, you know, for birthday gifts and Christmas gifts and I can whack it in there as soon as I see it. So so I think our phones are an extraordinarily good device. And if you find an app that works for you, I fully endorse that. Um, My experience, though, is when it comes to things like journaling or wiping the mind and getting things out of your head, first of all, you have to have a system. That's the first thing. Secondly, a lot of the research, now I don't have, I can't cite one for you right now, but I do know I've read a lot about the idea that writing things down clears the head better than typing. So I I do know that. So even from a journaling perspective, people find they get a much better result from journaling when they write versus typing their journal. But here's the thing. Journaling's so good. If you prefer to type, do it anyway. Just type it if that's what you really <laughs> yeah. want to do. Either way is really good for you. They just say writing's a little bit better. Yeah, exactly. I think when it comes to things like journaling where I'm expressing my sort of feelings and inner thoughts, I find it much more uh, helpful and relaxing when I write it down on paper. I find it very sort of a bit more tense and formal if I'm writing it on my phone. I feel like my phone is there for sort of work things, organization or communication um, and, you know, YouTube. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But when it comes to kind of looking after myself, I tend to steer away from technology um, and to sort of making sure, like I kind of mentioned before, taking that break 
from the screen and I think journaling especially because you sort of you tend to be sitting there for like you know a while like like a, at least a solid like couple like five to ten minutes um sort of sitting there and kind of writing stuff down and processing things um and I try to make sure that I'm not staring at a screen during that time so I can just sort of be by myself so yeah I think both are uh, equally as important but they are sort of I use them for very separate things if that makes sense <laughs> It makes perfect sense and I applaud you for minimising your screen time. Yes, something that I think everybody could do. I was on the train this morning and everyone's got their head in their phones and I was just like really trying to make sure I'm consciously staring out the window uh, because I know I'm going to be looking at a screen for the rest of the day. So I think it's pretty well understood that as humans, we tend to prioritize more urgent tasks uh, than those of lower importance, obviously. But this often leads to us sacrificing deadlines over workload. So what would you suggest are the best methods to assess and rate the priority of tasks to ensure productivity? Yeah, so this idea of urgency and importance has been around for a really long time. It was first talked about in most most popularised, I should say, by Stephen Covey in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People book. And all of us productivity authors and experts are standing on his shoulders, like it's at the root of yeah. a lot of um, our work. Um, having said that, we, we now work in many environments where urgency is the norm. And so just about everything is urgent. And so when everything's urgent, how do you decide then? And again, I'm, I'm going to say it again, but because I work with the clock in my body, not the one on the wall, I'm, I find that if you run the lens or the filter of intensity, how much brain power does this need, and impact, how important is this to me and what's the return on my energetic investment of this, then I'd be look, looking at my tasks in that way. So I'd be doing those things in the morning when my brain is most switched on because mm. there are things that don't require much brain power. You can do those in the afternoon. And quite frankly, I think urgency is a bit of a cop-out um, that we, we just assume this ASAP or this urgent. And for the most part, when we, when we begin to operate using our brain and our bodily um, body clock better, it almost gets to the point where nothing feels stressed and urgent anymore because you can clearly see when it needs to be done. You'll get to it at the right time when your body's ready to go and your brain's ready to go. And so rather than feeling like I fill my whole morning full of just stuff, I'm like quite discerning and quite conscious about what I'm using my time for. And that creates a sense of, of real calmness about how you go about doing your work. Yeah, I think you've... Uh, raised an interesting point there in terms of um, that urgency and I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, I feel like more so now than ever before in terms of when things are urgent and they need to be done ASAP and all of a sudden you're hit with all this stress um, and I think even people in Australia can probably see the differentiations. I know because I've lived in a few different places, Melbourne has that really intense sort of urgency, like when you're in the city and you're walking through crowds and everyone feels like they're running somewhere, um, whereas Queensland tends to be a little bit more laid back and relaxed and kind of like, yeah, okay, like we'll get to it when we need to. Um, so I think, yeah, it's important to, you know, acknowledge when things need to be done. 
um, mm-hmm. and, you know, understand, okay, this is something that I actually do need to do, um, you know, in a rather time efficient way. Um, but then also just making sure that you don't put that excess pressure on yourself. That's just going to lead to more stress and that's not efficient. So I guess the next question would be, what is your take on certain productivity myths? Because there definitely are some, you know, sort of uh, productivity only means uh, work or creativity can't be fit into certain systems or routines have to be rigid. What are your take on sort of these productivity myths? Well, I don't know that there's so much myths. I just think we've been led down a garden path with some of them. We've been told that hard work is what will get you get ahead. We've been told we need stretch goals. We've been told about urgency and importance. Um, and I'm more about frictionless and effortless productivity. So we know that we're, you know, at, we're at our most productive when we're getting things done and it feels like we're in flow. And so this idea that productive means I'm busy and I'm on and I'm active is totally wrong. It's about what is it that I need to get done and what is what is an effortless and frictionless way of me doing that. So this idea of no pain, no gain, I just do not buy into that one iota. I'm more about no pleasure, no point, frankly. Um, and, and oh, I like that. Does it, you like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and does it feel easy and effortless? So if I'm looking at setting up a day's worth of work, and this is why I like the body clock idea because I'm actually using my energy at its most peak and optimal time, which means it does feel effortless. But when it gets to the afternoon and I'm trying to do work that requires my brain to be switched on and it's just not as good, you know, say at around two or three o'clock in the afternoon, then it feels hard. Then it feels stressful because I'm trying to do work that my body and brain is just not up for. And so I'm, I'm going to say that we we get rid of urgency and importance. We don't want, I mean, importance is okay because that's similar to impact really. Um, but this idea that we've got to work on the urgent, because here's the thing, the first thing we do when we come to work typically is we open our email. And once we open our email, we're starting to process requests from other people. And the assumption is always that it's ASAP or urgent. So before we know it, we're at the mercy of other people's agendas and we're now having to, we basically spend the whole day in email scrambling. And so I'm going to suggest, and this may make, sorry, it may make some of your listeners vomit a bit in their mouth at the thought of this, <laughs> but I'm going to say, what would happen if you didn't look at your email until about 10 o'clock and you focused on some important stuff, the stuff that's really important at getting, you'll have decided that the day before. So the day before you decide, here are the top three things I need to get done tomorrow morning. And I'm not going to look at my email till they're done. Now, I get that that, that would make people scary. feel a bit stressed, right? <laughs> it is. It's a bit scary. But, gee, but but imagine, once you've got those three things done, then it doesn't matter what you do in your day, right? Yeah. Then the rest of the day, if it does get a bit all over the place, that's okay because you've got those key things done first. Yeah. So I guess you brought up an interesting point there um, in terms of uh, emails and checking emails and I think it's important for people, if you are sending a task to someone, um, and I used to work in a firm that that did this and was very conscious of this, if that task can be sort of left until later in the day or even completed within the next couple of days, sort of let that person know 
Mm-hmm. Um, like sort of just be like, oh, by the way, this isn't urgent, happy to receive this by, you know, whatever date it is that you would like this done by. If it's not urgent, then, you know, let that person know, just allow them to sort of breathe and be like, okay, I can get this done when I have the brain power and the space for it and the time for it. Um, so I think that's something that we should definitely um, all keep in the back of our mind when we're kind of considering ascending tasks to people because I think we can send them in a way where the, the words come across as very urgent um, and very sort of stressful. Uh, so I think, yeah, if you word your emails correctly and you you let people know when the timestamps are, it can make a working environment just that little bit more healthy and bearable. I completely agree. And particularly in organisations where there's a hierarchy or power structure, is that we often just assume that if something's come from someone senior, they expect that it's done urgently. So I think there's a real onus on leaders in organisations to do exactly what you talked about. Hey, I need this done by Friday is fine. You know, that that's it's as simple as that, right? And it just starts to alleviate some of the pressure for, for their peeps. Exactly. So a study conducted in Korea found that working longer hours than the standard working hours, uh, which is that 40-hour week, has been associated with significant health issues, uh, productivity loss in employees, um, and with that loss vested through presenteeism. So what advice do you have for employers and employees um, undergoing such a challenge in terms of, um, you know, having those extremely long working hours? Well, it's not so much working hours. I think we're about to see a bit of a revolution around working hours. And, and it's interesting that you cite a study in Korea because Korea and Japan they have very long working hours. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, there's even a phrase in Japan, the word is kuroshi, which is death from overwork, and it, 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 because they work such ridiculously long hours. Having said that, um, uh, I don't know if a Korean company signed up, but I know in Japan, they've been, Microsoft in Japan has been um, doing, working with the, the compressed work week or 32-hour work weeks. And I'm a huge advocate of that change. And particularly over the last two years where we've seen our working hours and our working, we've got a real opportunity now because, you know, remote Mm. work, hybrid work, the anywhere, anytime kind of framework means we can think very differently now about about our working hours. I mean, the current model that we have, this eight-hour workday or 40-hour work week, that's a throwback to the Industrial Revolution. So if, if you say that we're still working you know, an hourly structure that's a couple of hundred years old with modern day technologies and understanding. It just makes it sound ridiculous, doesn't it? Mm. So I'm a huge fan of the 32-hour work week. I think think it's possible. I know it's possible. I do do that myself and I do, and and I encourage my clients to do that as well when I'm I'm coaching them um, around how can you, how can you do, achieve more by working less hours and it is just so possible Mm. so we've my next question kind of touches on that and we've discussed this a little bit so according to a Forbes publication uh, the pandemic acted as like you said a huge eye-opener for many people regarding their reflection on their lives and the work that they do Um, and this sort of led to an exodus of a lot of uh, resignations um, and it was termed you know the great resignation um, mm-hmm. 
And so mindsets towards workplace productivity have changed and they've developed. And like you mentioned, there's this shift um, sort of from working from home and remote settings. So given the productivity has in fact risen amongst remote workers, do you think organizations should start addressing the issue of the 9 to 5 p.m. cycle? Completely. Um, <laughs> I, I think this idea of forcing people into something is ridiculous. And, and and I'm hearing stories from even from my daughter and from her colleagues and just from other people out in the world that are saying, you know, the with with respect to people my age, the older folks are saying you have to come back into the office. And of course, the answer is, well, well, why? Oh, because I just want you back here. And it's like, well, that's just not good enough, right? That's not a reasonable answer. You're absolutely right. There's been lots of studies have shown that people were up to 30 to 40% more productive working shorter hours. So the 32-hour work week, for example, the one in Microsoft in Japan, I think they said that they saw a 25% increase. And then a New Zealand company said they saw up to 40% increase in productivity Mm. with people working less hours. So that's straight up, there's no argument around hours and our ability to be more productive. In terms of home and work, though, I, I think there's, having been back in real life, doing some in real life work over the last couple of days, Um, What I noticed was how much more data was available to me when I was physically in a space with people, which the more data I have, I think then I can make better informed decisions, et cetera, which can lead to greater productivity. So I think the balance is really important. And because we're all beautiful, unique human souls, we do need to figure out the right balance for us. So my daughter, for example, says that she has the most productive week when she does two days in the office and three days at home. So she does all the, and she's very, because she's a chip off the old block, she does all <laughs> the stuff that, you know, she's very efficient and organised about. Yeah. Here's the things I need to do when I'm in the office. Here's who I need to talk to. Here's some the, the collaborations I need to do. And then she kind of goes home and powers through all the stuff that she doesn't need so much um, interaction with. So I think for all of us, we've got to figure out that. It's, it's kind of like, again, it is the, watch the clock in our body, not the one on the wall. It's kind of now pay attention to our working preferences and practices and have a bit of consciousness around what we're achieving in the different locations. And from a leadership perspective, I think it's a real challenge for leaders right now to just kind of step back and let, if you want to keep your people and your good people and, and in Australia that we don't succumb to the great resignation, that I think we need to just pull back a bit and let let people now start to find their own way about how they're working and and how they're doing their best work, I think, is the best strategy. I completely agree. I think I've heard um, of people as like, you know, people in higher up positions who are a bit anxious in terms of letting their workers stay at home after COVID because I think they're scared, which is ironic since productivity has increased, but there's that scared um, sort of anxiousness around oh they're they're not working like they're not getting stuff done like they're not doing as much as I need them to do Um, but then there's been so much research and so much proof that people are actually getting more done and they're being Mm -hmm. more productive um, and they're being productive in a way that is uh, helpful and efficient to 
like the company as well as their own mindset and mental health towards work. Um, Mm. So yeah, like you said, it's going to be an interesting time for leadership um, and people in those higher up roles to kind of let the reins a little go a little bit loose um, and just allow people and, you know, trust your employees that they're going to make the right decisions for your company and make the right decisions for themselves as workers because I don't think people are intentionally, you know, trying to jeopardise their jobs. I think people just have a new mindset in terms of, well, my family is the most important thing and that's what I've learned through COVID. Therefore, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm not wasting that, you know, hour or two hours of commute when I can be home with my kids, you know, spending time with them after I've just, you know, logged off and walked out of my home office. So it's going to be an interesting transition to see how we go in the next couple of years, but I'm really excited to sort of see this new time. It's one of the the nice things that has come out of COVID. I would completely agree. And you've touched on a few things in that in that um, in what you just said is around people making choices about what works for them. Is about organisations. Um, you know, this idea that if I can't see you, the assumption is that you're goofing off. It's it's just not true. And the last two years have shown us it's just not true. And my when I was working with organisations over the last couple of years and helping them transition into remote work and working with leaders. I would always say that it's it's not about hours. It's not about when they clock on. This is not about timesheets. This is about you telling them and sharing your expectations around what it is you need them to do, and then they do that. And if they don't do that, then you have a conversation. But I also said that um, everything's amplified. So the kinds of people who would goof off working from home were probably goofing off in the office too. Um, and so it just made it a bit feel a bit more amplified when there was a bit of distance. So you're absolutely right. It is a really interesting time. I think maybe not a revolution in work. We might be seeing more of an evolution as we take, you know, a bit of a Venn diagram of the remote, what we've learned over the last couple of years and what we love about, you know, the human connection that we have when we work with with great colleagues and what's the overlap there that we can we can work with, that hybrid overlap. I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that all pans out, I think. Definitely. So with this working sort of shifting from, um, you know, the office environment to the home environment, for many, there are these boundaries between work life and personal life that are starting to get a bit blurred. Um, And it can be difficult for some people to unplug after finishing work, especially given, um, you know, you're in the same space and a lot of the time that space that you're working in and and resting in is your home. Um, So how can people create a distinction between work time and resting time, even when they physically exist in the same space? Um, they're going to have to make the the space somehow separate. So what we're talking about here is contextual markers. So the easy thing about going into an office is the contextual marker is home is home, I go to work. They're the contextual markers. It's a context that I'm in. So when we have it at home, we've got to be very careful that we have a discrete place for work. Now, that could be the end of a kitchen bench, a dining table, a work-from-home desk, if that's if you're fortunate enough to have a spare room, whatever your conditions are, 
but you have a very discreet and distinct place that that's where I do my work. And it shouldn't be the place where you normally relax. And so don't take your computer to the couch. Uh, certainly don't take it to the bedroom. Um, very guilty of that. Because that's where you want to rest <laughs> and the couch is where you want to relax. And um, so I'm going to suggest that, that you always have a discreet place for work. Now, another colleague of mine, because textual marking is also in the head. So the mental boundary of I've knocked off work versus I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still at work versus knocked off work. And so there are things that we can do, like getting changed. Um, so I know a lot of us just wore active wear for the last two years. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, or we just got changed. We got dressed from the waist up, you know. Um, and some people would tell me that they would spend all day in their pajamas. And for me, that was alarm bells because pajamas are for. That's a signal that we're getting ready to wind down for the day. And so what happens is if you wear your pajamas all the time, your brain, I know this sounds sounds a bit trite to say this, it's just one example, but it's almost like your brain says, I'm now that's now all blurred, that's now all mixed up for me. I don't know, I'm meant to be relaxing, am I meant to be sleeping, am I meant to be working? And we can sometimes have trouble um, turning off. My favourite story over the last couple of years was a guy that said he was really struggling with his boundaries. And so at the end of the, he was working from home and at the end of his home day's work, he would pack up his laptop, stick it in the laptop bag, go out for a walk around the block, come back, leave the laptop bag at the front door, and now he'd finished work. That's wonderful. And the next morning he'd get up, pick up his bag, go for a walk around the block, come through the door, and now he started work. And it's a double whammy. He's got his contextual markers in place and he was getting a bit of outdoor fresh air, a bit of exercise as well. I loved that idea. Yeah, I think that's an incredible idea, breaking that sort of space up with exercise in between. I think, you know, mm. some people do that in the morning um, when they go and, you know, work out in the gym before work. Um, and it just sort of resets your mind in the morning and in the afternoon. Um, so I think that's something that we can probably all implement is just, you know, closing your computer, whether you want to take it with you or not is optional. <laughs> um, but, you know, just going for a walk and just sort of resetting and then entering, you know, your home space in a different, mm. in a different mindset. So we've talked a lot about um, sort of uh, workplace productivity in the home and outside in the office, et cetera. Um, but task management is probably one of the things that people struggle with the most. Um, so task management can be defined as the process of monitoring a project's tasks uh, throughout its stages from start to finish, which touches on what we've first spoken about. So what, in your opinion, are the best uh, sort of benefits of task organizing and managing um, and how important is it to sort of compartmentalize um, and organize your tasks? Probably the biggest benefit to task lists and to-do lists and, and compartmentalizing and, and setting yourself up in some kind of system is the notion that making progress visible is a highly motivating thing to do. Um, Dr. Jason Fox wrote a great book called The Game Changers, where he talked about motivation and what, you know, he basically he, 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 was, he was looking at games like Candy Crush. What is it that gets people addicted and wants to play Candy Crush? <laughs> yeah. And what he found was that it's the two key things was purpose and progress. 
And so provided we know, so in terms of task management, tasks are kind of the nitty gritty of a higher level thought around a project or a, or a big thing that we're delivering on. And so provided we're clear on the purpose, what's the outcome of all of this? You know, by the end of three months, what do we want to have seen happen or change or whatever? And then there's a series of tasks we perform towards that. He would say keeping that progress visible in some way, which is why it's so satisfying when you tick off or highlight a done task. And I'm sure there's people listening right now who are a bit like me who sometimes get to the end of the day and they look at their task list and then they remember three or four more things that they've done, add them to the list and then tick them off straight away. It's like, you know. And so what we're doing here is we're also activating our dopamine, which is telling us that, we, we, and, and serotonin, is the feelings of well-being and satisfaction from a good day's work and getting tasks done. So I think making progress visible is really important. I think these task lists and task management methodologies help us with that and that's what really helps us feel like where we are being productive and we are on top of our work. Wonderful thank you so much for answering all of those questions. So we're going to switch over now into the open mic section. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is the part of the show where I sort of hand it over to you and allow you to talk about whatever it is uh, that you sort of want to talk about in terms of what you're passionate um, or you know, whatever it needs to be. It doesn't have to be related to the topic. Um, so is there anything that you sort of want to bring to the floor and discuss with our listeners? Well, one of the things that I'm very curious about at the moment is the state of boredom. And I've been doing a little bit of reading. So it is kind of related to productivity, but it's actually more about the downtime and how so many people say, I can't sit still, I can't stop. And if I do stop, I feel bored. And then what is that state of boredom feel like? And so boredom typically feels like a state of restlessness. So I sit in the chair and I'm kind of, you know, fidgeting and I'm looking and I'm looking for something to do and my brain's going, you know, a million miles an hour, et cetera. And some of the research that's coming out now about boredom suggests that that very restless feeling that you have is a sign that you need to take a break, which is really weird right and and I'm still getting my head around this so I try to take a break I feel bored and that feeling of boredom is saying you need to take the break right I I get all of that but the other thing they're saying is the restlessness that you feel is because you're doing activity and doing stuff as I said just said earlier around excuse me to-do lists the dopamine hit that you get from ticking something off and that feeling of satisfaction we become addicted to that. And so and and so unless we're doing stuff all the time, we're missing out on that dopamine um, hit, which has us feeling useless and has us feel like, a, you know, like, like addic- addicted people not getting their hit of whatever it is they want to get a hit of. And so I'm fascinated at the moment about downtime, about boredom, about alpha brainwaves, the brainwaves that we get into when we're in flow and when we're doing um, when we're doing our hobbies and when we're daydreaming and also the therapeutic benefits of daydreaming and, um, and of actually of boredom. So that's, that's stuff I'm playing with at the moment that I'm very curious about um, uh, and, and, and the, up, you know, the connection to productivity because I can't not connect it back is <laughs> that it looks like the more downtime you have, the more daydreaming you do, the more sitting in silence you do, the more productive you'll be when you decide to put your mind to something. 
Interesting. It, it sounds very counterintuitive, sort of when you're, you're bored, you should take a break. And I'm like, well, I'm only bored when I'm not doing something. Mm -hmm. So how exactly does this work? Um, and I wanted to sort of uh, track back to something that you brought up before in terms of motivation. Um, I find when I'm personally bored, it's because I'm feeling that lack of motivation to get up and go and do things. Um, and you touched on this before in terms of not relying on motivation because mm. very rarely is that just sort of going to appear um, and sort of just getting on and doing it uh, and just sort of making sure that you're progressing towards the, the end task. Uh, so what advice, I guess I would ask now, what advice would you have for people who are sort of a bit worried about their lack of motivation to mm. do tasks, even if it's tasks that you are interested and passionate about. Sometimes you're just not really feeling up for it. Do you have any advice for people who feel like they can only do things when they are motivated to do them? Um, oh, you hit the nail on the head. Um, motivation, if you're waiting for motivation, you'll be waiting for a really long time. Um, and so in some respects, it is a little bit of a cop-out. I'm not doing things because I'm waiting to be motivated. I'm like, nope. Um, momentum trumps motivation. Um, and, in fact, momentum often precedes motivation or activity precedes motivation, if you will. So I have to tell you, as someone who's written 10 books, uh, I don't always sit down at my typewriter and feel compelled or my keyboard um, compelled to write a book. It's not like the muse descends and boom, I can bash out 30,000 words. <laughs> yeah. Just about every author I know, and I know, and I've got a, quite a few friends who have written books as well, and we all talk about the same thing. We nearly have to force ourselves to sit down and say, I'll just do 500 words today. Because if I do 500 words today and I do that for 10 days, I've got 5,000 words that I can mm -hmm. then edit. And if I do that for 20 days, you can do the maths. We just get better. And in 90 days, you can have a book written and ready to go and ready to be edited and published. But to say I, I'm, I'm just not motivated to write a book, as just to use that as an example, um, is, well, no one is. Not, not even Stephen King, who's one of my, <laughs> um, my favourite. He's, he's kind of my role model, if you will. And the reason, first of all, I love his books. Um, but secondly, his work ethic is exactly that. He says he doesn't ever, he gets inspiration for his stories, mm -hmm. but the motivation to write isn't always there. So he just literally sees it as his job. He sits down at 10 o'clock um, every morning and he doesn't leave his desk until uh, four. And sometimes it's a really slow grind, but he <laughs> keeps producing work, like one word at a time. And so I think we just have to remind ourselves that it's just momentum. Over the, over the last couple of years, being in and out of lockdowns and isolation periods and all that sort of stuff, there has been a general malaise um, mm. of people feeling demotivated and, and really sometimes not even feeling like getting out of bed. Um, and so some days it's just the act of getting out of bed is the momentum and just doing one thing, you know, just doing one thing that's just moving you in that direction can be enough. So I think take pressure off yourself and the world around motivation and just think, what's the one thing I could do today that just keeps this thing moving? And for me, what happens is I do 500 words and I, the 500 might be a bit of a grind, but then suddenly it becomes six, seven, eight, nine. And before I know it, I've sat at the, the, um, the keyboard for a good two or three hours and I've produced maybe two or 3,000 words 
um, in, in a sitting because the the momentum got me moving. Yeah, and I completely agree. You just sort of have to get that momentum going. Um, and I read a quote the other day and it's just stuck with me. Um, and it says, small progress is still progress. Um, and I think that's such an important thing, whether it is related to workplace productivity, like we've been talking about, or whether it's just related to, you know, something you're working towards um, mentally or physically, you know, small progress is still progress. You just sort of taking those steps, you know, whether it's, you know, you kind of want to go to the gym, but you don't want to go in for like, you know, massive two hour session, just getting yourself there. Like, congratulations, <laughs> you made it. Like you took that step to actually um, get to that place. So I think definitely something to keep in mind is, yeah, small progress is still is still progress and yeah I, I love that quote it was in like cute little like yellow box in like cute yellow writing as well and I was <laughs> a bit partial to like some nice some nice design of things um and having mm -hmm. things sort of look <laughs> aesthetically pleasing um <laughs> which I think is actually yeah something interesting which I'm I'm interested to get your opinion on about now that now that I've brought it up um in terms of uh stationary or technology or, you know, just your office, how important is it possibly to you? Um, yeah, how important is it that we uh, have a space that looks sort of visually appealing to the eye, um, mm. sort of having, you know, whether your desktop is looking, you know, clean and visually appealing or whether your room's tidy or even, you know, if you're uh, tasks are all nicely sort of written out. How important is it to you that that things look neat and tidy? And do you find that that affects your headspace? Well, personally, yes. So I am a bit of a neat freak and I do have pretty nice handwriting and I do love stationery. So coloured pens and highlighters are a part of my life. So I personally uh, do like that. Um, having said that, when I was researching my latest book, The One Day Refund, when I was looking at the place around living space and working space, um, I started to, to uncover that having a clean and tidy space is actually really important for productivity and yeah. having feeling like you've got ample space around you is really important for productivity. Um, and as so, so as natural light and, and good equipment and, and all those kinds of things. Um, I know myself, I feel a very strong sense of satisfaction when I have a really nice pen and, and my handwriting is always nicer when I have a nice pen or I've got a nice notebook or all those kinds of things. So I do yeah. find the aesthetics of work uh, can be really quite motivating. Um, and, you know, some people might say, oh, it's a, it's a distraction or it's procrastinating. You know, I can't work until I've got a fancy pen and a beautiful notebook. Um, but I actually find for me, I find it a motivator. Um, I find it's the kind of momentum that helps me uh, work effectively. So, yeah, I'm all about the aesthetics as well. Definitely, yeah. And I think that's um, an important note that you've sort of touched on there, um, which I think has to do a lot 
with our obsession with stationery, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> our, our love for places like Typo and you talked about Officeworks before, you love to just sort of walk around Officeworks and just sort of revel in the organisation <laughs> um, and, the, you know, everyone likes to sort of stand there and scribble with the pens on the pad, like I, oh, everyone's then, guilty of that. <laughs> I know, and Kiki K, they've got so yes. many planners and journals and beautiful books for everything. I can spend days in Kiki K. Definitely. It's so stunning in there. It's just such mm -hmm. a, yeah, a beautiful aesthetic. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think we all kind of look at it as, um, you know, that materialistic, like, oh, you shouldn't be so material. Like you shouldn't have to have like this or that to be productive. And, you know, at, at some points those, uh, those points are valid, you know, like you don't need to go out and buy a whole new set of stationery every time you want to achieve a goal or have something done, um, which, you know, touches on a few other, a few other issues and points that I, I probably won't delve into right now. Um, but I think it's, uh, important for you to understand, um, in what space you are most productive and, you mm. know, with what tools are you most productive? I think it's taken me definitely um, a couple years to kind of understand, um, you know, what things help me be productive. And I have my, I have my Kiki K planner, which I am guilty <laughs> of, my, my physical diary, um, which I love. You can actually take the notebook out out of the inside um, and replace it so that you don't have to buy like a whole new sort of pretty planner every time. Um, but it's, yeah, it's this gorgeous like leather bound one and you can buy the, the recyclable notepads, which I think is really nice, you know, being a bit environmentally friendly at the same time. I love it. <laughs> exactly. And we all love a good pen. I know um, I'm currently at university and if anyone's writing anything down and it looks nice, someone will immediately ask them, um, you know, is it is it a Muji pen or where did you get that <laughs> and where have you bought this? Because um, we all we all love good stationery. I think that's something that we've all come to fall in love with. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Muji does some pretty good pens, just quietly. Yes, it does. It really does. Um, you know, just just a little just a little side tangent that I've got on there. Um, well, thank you for opening the floor to that discussion. Uh, we're going to move now into some audience questions. Um, so I've just got three questions that we've got from our beautiful audience, and so I'm just going to start with the first one. What are the possible disadvantages of flexible working hours and how can we tackle them? Gosh, what a great question. The possible disadvantages of flexible working hours. I think probably the first thing that comes to me is, um, I don't know whether this is true for, for everyone and I also get not all men, not all women. But my experience with women is that we we agree to do flexible working hours, and so it might be that we say we'll only do thirty two hours in, or we might only do four days a week, or something like that. And um, but we end up doing a five day workload, and mm. so sometimes I think the risk for the workers um, is that we get you know we get a day off, or we get a compressed work week, or we can work different hours, and we end up working longer or more because. Um, you know, maybe it's partly gratitude, you know, thank you for <laughs> allowing me the flexibility so we work longer or harder. Yeah. Or I think because the flexibility is such that if we, if we have a truly flexible workplace, it could be that, you know, Tia, you and I are on the same team. I work Mondays, you work Tuesdays. 
And then we kind of, or, or I have, beg your pardon, I have Mondays off, you have Tuesdays off, and we forget that. And so me working on a Monday, I might just send you stuff and not remembering that you're not in and vice versa. And then the tendency for us to just end up working on those days anyway when we're meant to be having a day off, I think it, it takes a bit more conscious effort uh, when teams and people are, you know, having different flexible, um, you know, working conditions. So having said that, I really, you know, the question was about disadvantages, but I really think the advantages outweigh that. I think if we have good communication and we're, you know, having the right conversations with each other, I think we can do, um, we, we can make flexible work work. Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that we're all tackling uh, and we're all coming to terms with. And I had a beautiful conversation the other day uh, with one of my friends. She's an entrepreneur and she runs a tutoring business and um, she has no <laughs> set working hours because she's the CEO. So she mm. can work whenever she wants. And we were talking about um, how those flexible working hours, you know, work for us, but they also work against us because everyone sends you things at all random hours of the day and night um and even when we were sitting there you know my phone was buzzing her phone was buzzing um with all these work things that we were getting through so like you said I think it's just important that you um learn sort of time management skills and learn to um yeah sort of compartmentalize and separate uh, your working hours from your life and just make sure that you're you know stepping out and stepping back so our second question is how do I stay productive in my work life without letting it consume other areas of my life? So essentially, do you have any tips on work-life balance? Sure. So I'm going to talk about the 15% rule. So the idea is that we don't have to be 100% on 100% of the time, that at work, we should be planning to be at around 85% capacity, which gives us a 15% buffer. Um, and so this idea that we, you know, I, I'm going to suggest very simple things like this 15% buffer could be protect the end of your day. So let's say you've got an eight hour work day. Mm. Um, the last hour of your day, say from four to five, you should block that out and don't do any meetings and don't accept any other pieces of work at that time. So you get to choose or you get to control the end of your day. Uh, because one of the things I know about many organisations is that if there's blank time in a diary, people, it's up, it's up for grabs, right? Mm, people can just put them in and, and stuff, right? And yeah. so I encourage people to protect certainly the last hour of every day and probably the last two to three hours on a Friday. No one wants to do heavy work on a Friday no. afternoon. <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say is decide at what point is the last, time if you if you do happen to commute or you're working from home or whatever you're doing or you've got your phone with you and you've also got access to things like email um after hours decide a time that you're going to stop looking at it so I try not to I certainly don't look at email when I'm in bed ever because once you're in bed um there's because it's usually I say maybe nine ten o'clock at night there's nothing you can do and the worst thing that can happen is you read your email and now you have a sleepless night because there's going to be something on your mind. Mm. So I remember a company telling me once that they used to put the answering machine on in their company uh, at, at um, 5 to 5, so at, at say 4.55 p.m. because they said in that last five minutes, if we take a call, we actually can't fix it and it just then creates a whole bunch of angst for the customer and for us. 
And I feel a bit the same with email. You should stop looking at your email at, let's say, six o'clock at night because you can't do anything anyway. And all it's going to do is create for you a sleepless or anxious evening. So I'm going to say protect in your calendar the last hour and stop looking at email after a particular time of, of day because you can't do anything about it anyway and it'll just mess with you. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, like you said, making sure that you uh, have that sort of separation um, between, you know, certain times. Um, but also, yeah, just not looking at your emails because um, then you just get stressed about things for no particular reason and there's nothing you can do about them in that moment. Um, I think as humans we really struggle with that concept. But we're getting there. We're, we're working on it. We're working on it. Um, so our third and final question is, is essentially two questions. Um, so how far ahead should we be like setting goals uh, and what makes an unrealistic goal? Okay. Um, so first of all, I don't think that the thing about goals, I don't necessarily think of them as unrealistic. One of my core philosophies is, I'm going to answer that one first, the second question first, is if it's possible in the world, it's possible for you. It's just a matter of how. So let's just say I wanted to set a goal to go to the International Space Station. Now, you might say that's an unrealistic goal. I would say absolutely Sounds not. Fun. It is possible for people to go to the International Space Station. It's just a question of how. And then yep. am I willing to do all the bits associated with getting and possibly spending a great deal of money uh, to get to the International <laughs> Space Station, right? Yeah. So that's, that's, um, that's the first thing. I think you have to have multiple levels of goals. So I... Look, I, I think it's hard to go much beyond about 10 years. Um, I'm a, my life has always been, we, my husband and I have always done a decade at a time. What's this decade about? What's this decade about? Et cetera. And so our current decade that we're in, uh, we moved from Victoria to the Gold Coast and this uh, decade is about wind down, like making sure we've got, even though it's winding down, it's making sure we've got enough that we can begin the wind down. So I'm 55 um, I reckon I've got about another 10 years left in me. So this decade is going to be about making sure that we've got all the right stuff in place so I have ample choice um, to stop work, uh, you know, when I when I want to. Yeah. And so that's for me, is a, that's a pretty big goal. Um, but, you know, I know, I know people that have massive goals. They're like they want to be real estate moguls and stuff like that. And I go all power to you. So I don't think there's a maximum. Um, and for me, probably the minimum is, and it's a, it's probably the title of my next book, I think, is what have I got to get done in the next two weeks? Yeah. So we can have a massive goal and then we can chunk it to what have I got to get done in the next two weeks? I think there has to be a sense of purpose. And if we go back to my comment around, you know, my stuff around Dr. Jason Fox's work around purpose and progress. People are at their best when they have a sense of purpose and a sense of reason for doing stuff. Why do I get out of bed each day? Um, and so I think some level of goal is really important. Um, now, i got to tell you, that the time frame around it, I, I know you're looking for a more definitive answer and I don't think I can give you one because I do think it depends. But I think having yeah. a, you know, say, uh, what do I want to achieve this year? What do I want to achieve in the next five years? What do I achieve, want to achieve in the next 10 years? I think is really useful. And then what am I doing in the next two weeks that's moving me towards those things is a, is a good way to think about it. 
Great. Thank you so much for answering all of those questions. Um, very helpful answers and I think something that all of us can learn to implement. I'm definitely a goal-orientated person um, and people tell me all the time, oh, you need to be make more realistic goals. Um, but I think, you know, reach for the stars, do what you can. Um, and it's just all about, yeah, giving it a solid effort and giving it a go. Uh, so thank you for answering those questions, Donna. So that pretty much brings us to the end of our podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Um, before we go, you did mention a couple times that there is a book that is available. So for those who are looking to grab a copy, uh, where can they grab a copy? So the book's called The One Day Refund, Take Back Time, Spend It Wisely. And you'll get it on any of the good bookstores if you're a Booktopia fan or an Amazon fan, whatever works for you. And, of course, you can get it at donnamcgeorge.com slash shop. Uh, I have uh, all my books um, in there for people to grab. Wonderful. I'll definitely be grabbing a copy of that. Thank you so much, Donna. Um, and to all our listeners, don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. You have been listening to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps others find us and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pp.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Tia Hama. Thanks for tuning in.